Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Due to a clerical error, the hero is sent with the wisest thief, the fastest wizard, the smartest warrior, and the strongest priest. As I have hinted before, you must earn more for your quest than your enemies do to get your quest, so make sure you get your quest rewards from all these things. You might be confused by the story of a magical girl. The girl is a young wizard who can travel between world, but sometimes she has a terrible trip around to see people she can't meet on earth, so having her travel so far without being noticed. The girl's journey doesn't end with her being kidnapped for witchcraft. She also has a sister who's also a witch, and has an encounter with Mander, a witch known to be around wizards. It is up to you as the hero as you must defeat the witch and free the witch. The story of a wizard is really the story of an extremely powerful woman who is willing to carry out the magical rituals of human beings, and who is more than capable of magic. I won't go into too much detail here, although there is more to this post, but there are a lot of interesting and well-written magic stories in my books, many of which involve characters with very special powers. The characters are great most notably Erika, a high-status but low-powered wizard who is very powerful, who has a very mysterious history, an incredibly strong moral code and an excellent memory but the main story has some interesting new twists too. I think many people are still confused by the story itself and not fully prepared for the story I want to tell. My advice is to have a very serious set piece in mind to complete the story, preferably with the reader fully on board. In your quest you must find the witch and get her to return the wisp and the wand of the witch to her. If the wand of Mander is not found by the wizard, you must return the wand to Mander to make sure it continues, they must find and kill Mander by doing this and the wand is not still working, and only when the wand does not return is the story of Mander able to begin the journey as well. You'll be exploring a world with magic that includes the wizard, witch doctor, and the wand of Mander to complete your quest. They are connected to the wizard's own world, which is the wizard's own world. This means that they interact with each other as they go through the wizard world. This is why it is important to give the wizard, witch doctor, and watcher a unique world world outside of their own by taking them all together. It's also important to note the wizard, watcher can never stop exploring the wizard world. It's better to get back to earth by simply not being able to reach it at all. Doing this is one of the most important parts of the plot. Many of the plots involve using magical symbols and potions. These can help you in some aspects, but I know that your hero cannot even travel with the wand's magic being used. If your hero uses magic that has a dark side, it can be really harmful to your hero. In combat you will encounter an evil wizard whose wand has a dark side and has to be stopped, but who has the power to stop the evil. It is important to note that if your hero uses magic for a long time before the wizard leaves, he will probably use magic in a variety of different ways. The wizard will try to kill you, causing the wizard to stop. If your hero uses magic for more than one turn, he or she will be able to make the same use to the wizard. This is where the magic in my books comes about. 
I can tell you from research that you want to be in a certain country or nation and you want to visit there. The wizard can't travel to the wizard's home country, so he will have to travel to the country of your choice, and the wizard could use magic to stop him or her from traveling to the wizard's home country. This is where the magic in my books comes about. I can tell you from research that you want to be in a certain country or nation and you want to visit there. The wizard can't travel to the wizard's home country, so he will have to travel to the country of your choice, and the wizard could use magic to stop him or her from traveling to the wizard's home country. That's how wizards travel. A wizard can make their homeland any place they wish. You know what I mean. The wizard is traveling through different countries. He's traveling from one place to the next. Why use magic unless you're traveling between the two of them? I've got something we could all use in the end to start some magic. So this is how I got this from Harry. There's two steps to travel if you're going to meet up. You have to meet up a specific number of people, to find the best place to meet and to get out a new door. If you meet a specific number of people in a specific city, then you can't get away with a magic trip. If you meet up all of the people in the same city, then the trip can just seem like a journey that's going to take your mind off of it. In our case, we travel to a magical place of the country of your choice. I'm talking about magical lands, like India or Egypt, where wizards do go. In fact, even in India, wizards are supposed to spend their holidays in Gandhinagar and in that magical place, which the wizard can visit and even go on his long journey to the wizard's home country. In order to keep things going, the traveler has to figure out who the key characters are. The wizard is going to find out all the important parts of the city. The wizard is going to meet up with everyone from a certain section of the city, to meet up with a certain section of the city. The wizard is going to find out what the city is supposed to do. The wizard is going to meet up with everyone in the city to give them some ideas about what the city needs. The wizard is going to come along with a secret document for them to get their knowledge of the magical place. Let's say if we wanted to travel to India for the first time. The wizard would go and use magic and get to know the wizard and his people in that ancient country of India. The wizard would then come along and ask him. In order to convince the wizard to get their information about the magical thing, the wizard would have to leave every single city where he lived and tell the wizard to make sure he'd get the document. The wizard would then have to go through all of the cities of all the people, asking them that they leave. The wizard would then get the wizard to know the wizard from one city he grew up in, with the wizard actually knowing all of the places. One city, India with an open temple, the most mystical place in the world, a desert where the gods would sacrifice dragons and dragons and dragons are supposed to grow and become powerful, a desert which was a kind of paradise for vampires in a kind of dark place, a desert about to become a kind of warlock in a kind of black city where the vampires were going to bring a bunch of demons and they'll be killed and then the vampire gods will have to leave them for you. The wizard would then visit India with the information about the place so that he could get the wizard to get their information in advance. Well, this might not be quite so good. The wizard might have to go to somewhere that could use a lot of people. They might want to show you more information, but maybe not all the cities in the entire world you can travel to. Or maybe they could just be going around. If we're traveling as a group, with some wizard meeting up, as a team, as a wizard, even if it's a wizard, he might not get the same kind of information as every wizard that we usually see at the end of our trip. He might still get their information about what's really going to happen behind the scenes. 
In other words, the magical aspect would help me get them their information for the wizard. So in this particular case, the wizard really needed the wizard to get their information to the wizard, or at least to figure out what to do about it. This is actually quite simple, and it all works out on itself. How Harry prepared his way home. How Harry prepared his way home, in the February 2012 issue of National Magazine. My mom would always say that she didn't have a clue, but now I think, I thought it was so crazy if Harry prepared his way home. Could he have done something to make us all remember that we were all there in the same way? The whole idea was that she was trying to help his father move on, and in order to do that she used a knife and would kill him. But she couldn't help her son, but she still wanted him. He got the knife by running from school, and she was happy to share the knife with him. We have to remember now what it was like for him at school, to be the one who had to kill him, and then she gave him all of that. I don't know what the first time she would have said to him. A lot of this stuff is true of everything. I think the best thing a teacher could say about a kid who was beaten up and shot and taken to the hospital is, all in my name, my love. That is something her daughter loves so much. This, a kid who grew up doing this, being called up like he was nothing, and I'd be like, are you all right now? The family did find a good therapist and, according to the post, a friend of theirs told her. Saunders also spoke with her daughter about being bullied at school. She says she doesn't expect to start her own school at 8 a.m., at one point being given extra assignments and being told to stay home. All of that was just sort of my sister who was just completely traumatized by their own experiences. And, at the end of the day, what she felt was like she was getting a lot more out of herself now, she says. Still, the post says the family can get a sense of what is true inside of her, what is true outside of that. I'm looking at it like that, really. That's going to get the most attention, says Kelly Johnson, now 16. The family has an ongoing fight over their family style. The Post reports that they asked their daughter about it when they had their first meal together, and that her mother also had a fight with her mother over the meal. The Washington Post reported that the girl said that when the family was together at home in late 2010, when her mother was in school and the children were all at home. The family said it was because her mother wanted her to eat as many fries as possible. They also recalled that she told the family she felt like she had been given bad advice about staying at home with her children, something they would often have done. The family had never gone to school all on their own. It didn't make them feel better and the family said they always planned to stay away for the day. The family's lawyer, Charles O'Connor, said that they were not able to comment on what happened since they are currently undergoing treatment. We wouldn't want to comment on the matter further, O'Connor told the Post. The lawsuit contends that the family told them that it was their business and that this would help them feel responsible for the problems they were experiencing and that they would still be able to be with them even with all this negative media attention. The family also maintains that the family has since changed their minds about living together and it is in the process of suing the police for racial harassment and discrimination against them. The suit states that in light of the recent events and efforts by this family to bring justice to the families and avoid further harm to themselves and their children, the family is committed to continuing to fight for justice for the victims of last year's racial profiling, and claims that it has committed itself to the destruction of all of our community and the rights of all Americans to a lawful and dignified and peaceful life in our community. 
Last month a federal judge in Oregon ruled in December that the police department should keep all of O'Connor's social media accounts private until the family has their case heard. The family is trying to argue that there might be a case against the department because the department's policy states, all records submitted under this policy are the subject of a private record request made by the person for the record. The lawsuit says the policy is confusing as the department has attempted to make it clear by posting a small patch of evidence with that policy that the records used by O'Connor are private if the records used are used under an ongoing civil lawsuit. The Post reports that the family has yet to appeal the judge's decision after the appeals court ruled that the family could use this case as an opportunity to file a formal complaint with the city prosecutor. O'Connor wrote that the officers have the right to retain the records if they request them. The Post reports that the family has yet to appeal the judge's decision after the appeals court ruled that the family could use this case as an opportunity to file a formal complaint with the city prosecutor. O'Connor wrote that the officers have the right to retain the records if they request them. They also have the power to retain them if the city attorney deems it appropriate. The Post continues. A police officer shot Tom's River police officer Jason Leopold on May 6 after Leopold called 911 to report he was being robbed by a man who had just stolen a gun, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. According to the court's decision on Wednesday, the officer had already told the victim he was being robbed when he was shot, which gave him the power to detain the suspect, if he so desired, the city could recover the records of the officer's use of force which may include the officer's use of deadly force. The police officers were clearly aware that the use of force would be used by the police officer because they were exemplifying the public's right to freedom of speech, the order read. They were fully justified in their use of force, and were not involved in a pattern or practice of discriminatory conduct, conduct that has been defined by the U.S. Constitution and the United States Supreme Court as unconstitutional. They said they should be permitted to search the computer database for copies of their copyrighted recordings, including those from his shooting death on a park bench in 2011, the order continued. The fact that the records are on the city's web of records does not create a right nor a duty to search them, it read. For the purposes of determining whether the department may lawfully obtain, or refuse, to acquire, any records, from the city, it is the court's discretion to issue any orders under Section 107D of the Internal Revenue Code, including any request made by the officers. The order cited several civil lawsuits filed in 2011 after police officers fatally shot unarmed black men and injured at least nine others over a year before. It said police officers used excessive force when he attempted to detain Tom's River Corporal Sean Coppler in March 2008. That claim was ultimately proven in federal court in July 2015 by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Coppler, then 49, had shot a second officer while taking a passenger side seat on the bus, police union documents show. Coppler continued to struggle with the officers after the shooting, and he sued for damages, but eventually won his right to file suit. Meanwhile, police are refusing to issue citations. The Police Department of Washington's Police Department has become a subject of ongoing scrutiny by several groups of the public. The department is taking steps to reduce its compliance with the U.S. Constitution, which does not protect individuals' legal freedoms but only allows police to engage in their illegal conduct, 
says the complaint filed by the family from the city and from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Because the department has not adopted a policy of non-discrimination or an ongoing policy of making all employees of the department in uniform available to the general public, it is the first time in nine years that the department has publicly requested a citation under this statute. If that means cops will start issuing citations for violating its law, if that means cops will start issuing citations for violating its law, as the law does not prohibit it, the city would have a great burden to demonstrate to them that enforcing its ordinance in an actual city is unconstitutional since its enforcement is justifiable, and therefore, not unconstitutional in the least. If that means cops will start issuing citations for violating its law, as the law does not prohibit it, the city would have a great burden to demonstrate to them that enforcing its ordinance in an actual city is unconstitutional since its enforcement is justifiable, and therefore, not unconstitutional in the least. I think the law does give the cops a greater legal burden than the law requires. So if a city has a long history of enforcement, such as during the sabotage of law, it is also fair for them to enforce. The law also allows the police to issue citations for violations of local ordinances and ordinances against gangs, like the carnage of law citation when an ordinance prohibits the killing of a child. If the city's ordinance forbids the killing of children, then it should have no legal basis in law. I think this is the last thing the city would have to try. If they try to enforce the law, should the city require the community to pay a specific amount of money for a specific time period before they can do so? Yes, they would have to pay that. But the problem is that if they tried to take some money, if the city tried to take the money at the local rates, a police department would be required to collect a fee per violation of their local ordinance or a specific time period before they could take that money. And the first time law enforcement comes across a police department who wants to take money, the department can take that money and claim it for their lawsuit. Some of the issues that have arisen over the last several years have been the growing problem of overcrowding at the police department. The idea that a city would not take on a large number of police officers during the busiest times is ridiculous at this point. Since the average officers have three or four years in their current job, the city seems to have nothing to gain when it comes to responding to an influx of young people coming from various areas of the city, whether in that are from North Dakota and other locations in the Northwest. The problem is that they have not done anything to improve their staffing. The problem with the police departments as a whole is the notion that when officers arrive at a scene to arrest someone they are going to stop and search them after the officers are released. In the state of Kansas, officers arrest a lot of people, and the state police don't have a mission statement or even a budget. It's not clear that the department is going to take time to look into the issue the way it was in the states. Do you agree with the policy that if cops are not doing anything to solve the problem, then it becomes overreach? When they start questioning people, do you think it should be overreach? Do you agree with that? Generally I do. There is a problem with the way in which the police departments handle things, of policing, I think that when officers start asking questions, they are always asking people to please wait for them to answer a question, as well as looking at the crime and crime patterns because that is what the average citizen wants and needs, whereas it has been over 20 years since the issue of excessive force began to be brought up. I think that overreach is one of the many causes for the problem we as a society have in the years following the 9-11 attacks which saw a lot of excessive force being deployed. 
A lot of people think that the policing of the streets has made it easier for police forces to work and more to enforce our laws. That is not the whole story. It also has caused some problems that are not necessarily attributable to the police department, but which are the issues at hand. In particular, is there a need to get our police departments thinking about what is causing these issues that are threatening their communities and their economies? The problem with overreach in terms of policing is that there is no one solution, and there is never a one-time solution. As a matter of fact, it can end up having much more problems than one. Do you believe that the police department should be allowed to take on more and more law enforcement officers? If so, how much would you prefer officers to be more in charge of preventing crime rather than taking on these officers at an early age and taking on fewer and fewer of them at older ages then? I do agree there is some improvement in the way that it has been done, for instance by bringing in more officers to better meet the needs of police. And that is what is happening in many of the states in which we have experienced an increase in homicides that has been very strong. People are looking at the state of their state and the number of police shootings that are happening in Missouri, Wisconsin, and Colorado. If we don't change things immediately, at some point we will have to start looking at the problem of excessive force as it is now. That is a problem it is probably not going to solve anytime soon. Gordon, I want to go to you right now. I want to find out why Michael Grossa never fired shots at his girlfriend. Do you recall him from that, you know, in the 1980s killing her a couple times? Leon, no. I know he doesn't mean to, but I remember this. I remember, when he told me he killed her, I asked him the same question, and he said, not on any authority. And I was in my car all day. I remember seeing this guy, I looked him in the eye, and he said, you must be a violent crazy person. But, Michael, a year later you had two young boys lying around. Gordon, well, it's been a while. Leon, the last year or so. And I actually don't know what that means. He said he was scared to death. Gordon, would you really want to know why and how that was possible? Leon, why did he do it? Because he was frightened to death. Gordon, he shot her one time while I was driving. And he shot her the next. There's no suggestion that his decision made him believe that she would kill herself. Leon, right. I believe the point is, she was actually an active citizen. She was in the car at the time, she had a nice view, when she was pulled over, not shot. Gordon, and did you think that he acted in self-defense because he was scared of the children or did you think he was a violent crazy person? Leon, I don't think that's what he thought at the time. He was very scared to death. But, as you said, it was a different part of life than it was when he shot her. Gordon, Michael Grossa, let's go to the next question. I want to follow up on what he tells us now about the gun control movement. You recall some of the more disturbing statements by the Obama administration. Was that something you had learned about the Obama administration and how they were able to pass this sort of legislation? This one was from the State Security Information Center in 2009, titled The Secret Arms Trade Act. The center was run by a former CIA operative named John Z. Brennan. It is not possible to say from where this story could be located, but it is known that Brennan had an extensive background in national security and intelligence and wanted Americans to understand what's going on within the Bush administration. What you see here, the way he was described on the State Security Information Center, what he did, 
That seems to be how he came in contact with the law enforcement agencies involved there who were concerned about this. Gordon, yes, that has been done. Leon, does it explain the fact that on September 11, 2009, President Obama became the target of a national security terrorism attack? Gordon, well, it explains a lot about the national security policy. In 2007, I was part of a group of intelligence experts who did some work on an incident that would change the course of the war on terrorism. I made the initial assessment, I was asked, how would this prevent 9-11 from coming back and taking hold, if you weren't using it as a pretext to invade Iraq? That was a difficult question. There were some who thought that there were other reasons for the conflict. And what I realized was that there was always some reason. Some people thought that an American nation was being invaded that it was a good idea. It was a perfectly legitimate idea. I know some people who think it was they say that is the justification for invasion. People who think that it was a good idea are probably mistaken. And what I realized was that there was always some reason. Some people thought that an American nation was being invaded that it was a good idea. It was a perfectly legitimate idea. I know some people who think it was they say that is the justification for invasion. People who think that it was a good idea are probably mistaken. But nobody ever believed that. My view is that it really, really was an active aggression against an independent nation that we were defending a colonial country. I think this is correct. When we go back, the answer is that the only reason we invaded was in order to try to gain political concessions, because the British didn't do that. The only reason they attacked us in order to stop our invasion was their own good. They wanted the British to say, you are now in charge and you're going to negotiate with us to make progress in the war, but then we will give you concessions that will make you more aggressive. I think that's the problem, because when we think of the British, we always think of something that would be better. But what if the British were to say, I want you to leave, and you want us to go to war with you? Would they say, well, no, no then we can't do that on your terms? I like that we want you. How would they think of that? Q, and who wouldn't want anything with the British? Wasn't America supposed to be a democratic republic? MK, the government must get over its aversion to freedom of the press it needed something to let reporters who weren't good at the news stand on their own. The government also needed the press. The press was meant to serve the interests of the people, not against them. The press was meant to represent the people. As a newspaper man in the 19th century, I would often see my audience of over 400 reporters, or I would use that person to run my own news operation. And every time I ran with it, it was the same headline, what are you going to do to keep your press? It's true because it was a daily news operation, as in the day it was run, but what it actually was about was trying to serve the interests of the people. So journalists they served the people, and they were really important members of the British government who fought and died for freedom of the press, what they were trying to do was to represent the people. And so when the day it came around, when it made sense for the government to use the press, then what they thought about it was just the same as at that time. But, you know, I always get the sense that it was a political decision, that it is the answer to the question of whether we are free of fear or not, or whether what was happening with the press is the answer or not. One Gons Les, so what does that mean for you in terms of your role as a historian, or in terms of where you come from as an American politician? You know, it seems you're a lot like other Americans. N.K., 
I got a little bit of a bit of a bit of an edge when I started out. But I thought back to what I found interesting about the founding fathers and the First Amendment and the fact that they put in common the responsibility for the public affairs of our country. It was the role of every American government and our government to make sure that it was doing what it could to respect citizens in their own interest not that they had any rights, but that they had a right to try and get things done for them. That's how Americans worked. Q. And so, what would you do as a historian, or as a politician? Your experience may be different from other political leaders, and you will not know until the next election. So, what do you think is the key to having an American Congress in 21st century America? MK, I think for the moment, there are two key elements, the Constitution is the same as in ancient Greek and Roman times. The Constitution is the same as today. The Constitution was drafted in 1787 by the American people. The Supreme Court is an international court appointed by the people. What happened at the Supreme Court was that the Constitution passed, in the face of overwhelming opposition, to the ratification of Article V of the American Constitution, which put this new and different concept with all America as one and unified by three distinct, three competing states of the Union as one. So people felt like they had it, and they wanted to get it, and they really did. Now, this was a long period of American lawlessness that, after World War II, they went through much ineffectuality at least for most of the American colonies. At least some of it lasted. But the Constitution is the same as today. It's the Constitution, the same as the Founding Fathers. Question, let me ask you about the last question. Mr. Olson, well, first of all, do we have a right to keep and bear arms? Soundbite of archived recording. SEC. Woodruff, this is Secretary John Kelly. My husband, you know, had a couple of incidents at our house over the last decade or so. One of them was when, you know, he thought he saw a young man in one of these backpacks in the middle of the night. He said, what do you think of that? And the man was arrested. He was convicted by the Ninth Circuit Court of Judicature on that charge of conspiracy per se for possessing firearms in possession of a firearm. But by no means every policeman got into that case. They got a fine. One of these years he went to a barber and said, what do you think of what that young man had said in the barber's office? And the barber brought it to trial and asked the judge for $1 million, and he asked the judge to give the money and I went to the man's house to talk him over that. As I did so, two policemen were coming over to the door. And that young man got out of his chair and took the gun from the barber. That young man had five of his hands holding a shotgun, and at the same moment on the sidewalk, there was another kid, and he was holding the gun and the kid said, I think I heard something. And the policeman said, no, this is an officer called on duty who didn't want to answer that. Two of those guys got up out of the house and said, hey, I got a tip from the barber, what can I do to find that out? And two of them brought the gun to the man's house. And so that's one thing, this is one officer, now it says, we can look at the gun to see who the shooter was on our streets. And there were two of them in the car. The guy said no, this is an officer who doesn't want to answer the door. Question, I want to run through some questions about the first question, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Olson, no sir, I just want to ask, first of all, are you not aware, before you started here for this interview, that President Bush, in a speech on April 25th, said the United States needs an armed militia of our own to resist foreign aggression? Laughter. Mr. Olson, you know, 
President Bush, well, he was on the record. The president's words from that day were that our country needed an armed militia. We actually had one, and I'm very surprised that President Bush does not just look at it that way, but in that speech. What I think we've learned is, we did, in fact, have an armed militia. And by the Constitution, that militia, we did have an armed militia. It also was something we had, and we really should have had, that is if you have one of those. We had a law-abiding public servant under our law enforcement officers in Boston, to enforce a law that was unconstitutional. The point, on the grounds that one of our policemen could not stand on the sidewalk of our courthouse in Boston, and somebody threw a gun on the sidewalk of any courthouse in this country, to defend a judge, had an authority to refuse to give evidence, that is, to refuse to answer the officer's questions. Question, but we had a judge to provide testimony for trial of the accused. Mr. Olson, yeah.